Again, just to jump in here, the first, uh, there's only one chapter in Jude, of course, so uh, we're going to try to cover the first 10 verses here. To open up, chapter, verse 1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied, multiplied to you. So this is the introduction. Jude refers to himself here as a, a bondservant. And uh, many of our writers here in the New Testament refer to themselves as a bondservant. And really what that is, is a, a slave or uh, one who has given himself up to another's will, in this case, the Lord, uh, God's will. Or another definition would be devoted to another to the disregard of one's own will. So there's a sacrifice here in being a bondservant that we make ourselves a bondservant to the Lord. We're putting aside our own desire, our own will, that we may serve his will. Now, Jude, or Judas, it's, it's really a matter of how you translate it. It's the same name. was a popular name at the, the time of this, and this was written probably about 67 A.D., uh, so only about 30 years after Christ was crucified. But this name was popular because of a gentleman named Judas Maccabeus, and he was a leader of the Jewish resistance against Syria during the Maccabean Revolt. So the, Judas was a popular name, or Jude was a popular name, but we only have really two here in the Bible that we see. Of course, Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 apostles that we have in the Bible. The other was Judas, the brother of Jesus, uh, who is commonly regarded as the writer of this letter. That's pretty well agreed to by most scholars. When Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, he was telling the, the parables, those parables of the sower, the wheat and tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, the parable of the hidden treasures, uh, the parable of the pearl of great price, and the parable of the dragnet. Once he was telling all those, the people who were gathered around were just so astonished at his knowledge that he had and the the wisdom that he had in teaching these. And uh, we're told uh, that they were so astonished, they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get these things? And it says they were offended by him. Of course, you don't see that in the world today, do you? Offense, you know, God's teachings. But we see James and Jude, Judas, both listed there as brothers of Jesus. And remember, Jesus' brothers really didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. During his ministry time on earth, they really didn't believe that he was the, the Messiah. They only came to that understanding after the resurrection. So it's definitely possible and, and most likely probable that, that is the, the Jude or Judas that we see is writing this letter. This was, in fact, the brother of Jesus. Now, Jude addresses this letter to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, I think this address is very important as we go through this letter. One of the reasons is we're going to see some encouragement here in the beginning, but then we're going to start seeing some warnings that come up. And I think there's a reason why he wants to warn those that he's addressing this letter to. So those who are called, first of all, we want to notice that these are people who have received an invitation. It's an invitation from God. If you've been called, you've been invited. God has called upon you. Sanctified. Those who have been called and sanctified are purified, set apart from profane things. People who've been taken out of the bad situation or the the things of this world they were involved in and, and placed to a separate place separate from those. And preserve, cared for or attended to gratefully, guarded. Really shepherded is what we're going to see here. Those are the ones that the Lord is shepherding to this day. So Jude is addressing those individuals which have received a calling from God, been purified of their sins and set apart, separated from the defiled things of this world for a specific purpose, 
and are continually guarded or cared for by Jesus Christ. Now, hopefully that is referring to everybody in this room. That, that's us. The, the church is who he's referring to there. So these are people that Jude cares about that he's addressing this letter to, not a bunch of strangers. Now, we most re- frequently refer to these individuals today as Christians. Christians. And again, if you've answered that call and allowed God to come into your life, you know, curing you, cleansing you of those previous sins and allowing him to direct your life today in this wicked world, then this is referring to you. This letter is addressed to you. If that describes you, this is applicable to you. Cover that. Jude sends wishes, really a prayer, for mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied to you. Now, I really like that he adds multiplied to you, not just to you, but multiplied to you. So this isn't different than added. We think if we just add something, he wants it to be multiplied. Who can multiply blessings to us? Really, only God can multiply blessings to us. We can bless one another, but really to multiply blessings, that's a work of God that we see. This indicates that they should not be content with the condition they are in presently. You know, we talked Wednesday night that God doesn't call us just to be content where we are, that we're not just supposed to get by as Christians. But as he offers this prayer of mercy, peace, and love, he says, multiply to you. Then he doesn't want them to stay in the condition they're in. He wants to see them receive more blessing, more mercy, and more love as they go through their life. Even the recipients of this letter may feel that they're in what we would call a good place now, but Jude wants to encourage them further. Is there anybody here that can withstand a little more mercy today or a little more peace in your life or a little more love extended towards you? I think we're all in that place. And there are those that care to minister to us and and help us to receive that, but nobody more so than God. Nobody more so than God wants to offer that mercy, peace, and grace in our lives. In reality, God wants to bless us beyond what we could even imagine, more than we could ever ask for. We're taught in the Bible. Now, going to verse 3, opens up with beloved. Remember I said these are people that Jude cares about as we look at this address. He refers to them as beloved. And this really, I think, sets a tone uh, for what we're going to see in this letter because next we're going to move into some warnings, some some not-so-pretty parts of Scripture. And the reason Jude feels it necessary to share this is because these are the beloved. These are people he truly cares about. Jude says, Well, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So we can see that Jude had intended or at least desired to write a letter about our common salvation. Now, by common salvation, Jude isn't referring to the fact that it's common as in you can just get it anywhere. It's just available on the street or on the grocery store shelves for a few pennies or dollars here and there. What he's referring to is the fact that everyone has to come to God through the common plan of salvation. That that plan is the same regardless of who you are. Jesus' disciples were told to enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. And of course, in two verses later after that, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, which we're going to see the discussion of these men and the false teachings that we're going to have that Jude is warning them about. But we all come to God through Jesus. There is no other name given through which man may be saved. So to be a Christian is to be a part of a community of believers that we call the church, right? And we get that word church where? From our Bibles. That's where we get the word church from is from our Bibles. 
And that word has lots of definitions today. When you use the word church, there's a lot of different pictures in people's mind. But when we go back to the biblical definition of church, we see that it's defined as what? The body of Christ. And there is only one. There is the body of Christ. So again, being a Christian is standing shoulder to shoulder with millions of other Christians around the world. Whether you recognize it or not, these are our kin. These are our relatives through Christ. And as I mentioned before, as we're making an effort to to do things with other churches, it's not that we want to be able to say, look how many church friends we have. It's because we want to recognize that those are our brothers and sisters. Those are people that the Lord has called to. They have giftings. They have talents. They have needs that we can all work together to share in the blessings and the burdens that we all have when we work together. Quoting Spurgeon, Upon other matters, there are distinctions among believers, but yet there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Armenian as well as by the Calvinist, possessed by the Presbyterian as well as by the Episcopalian, prized by the Quaker as well as by the Baptist. Those who are in Christ are more near of kin than they know of, and their intense unity in deep essential truth is a greater force than most of them imagine. Only give it scope and it will work wonders. So what he's saying is we focus on what we have in common. God can do great things as we work together. We see the division that comes between so many denominations today. And it's not the way God intended for it to be. We can debate whether he ever intended for there to be denominations. But the one thing we can't debate is that there is a common salvation that we all come to him through. Throughout history as well as today, we find young Christians and old Christians. Brave Christians, cowardly Christians, strong and weak Christians. But we're all part of the church. And where each group has weaknesses, another has strengths. And when we all work together, we form the one body of Christ. Paul addresses the spiritual gifts and, as well as unity and diversity in the body of Christ in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There he discusses how the individual members of the body are to relate to one another. So much so that he declares if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And conversely, if one member is honored, all members are honored. So we see that we share in the blessings and the sufferings of our brothers and sisters within the fellowship. The condition of each member of the body of Christ affects all the members of the body. And that's why, again, it's important that we focus on what we have in common, not what we have in differences. Really, if we look at those differences, there's something most of the time that we can't change in one another anyway. What I find in the differences I have with other Christians is only something the Lord can change. Really, me arguing with them is not going to help. Me trying to force them into my point of view is really only going to set them more so in their own. The best thing I can do for a person that I believe has the misguided beliefs is prayer. Because if I'm seeking the Lord on their behalf and they're seeking the Lord in something, God's going to change that. Or He's going to change it in me, may be the case. In verse 12 there in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that for as the body is one that has many members, but all the members of that one body... Being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit, that same Spirit that we pray, pray through. So many people debate whether or not a Christian has to attend church. And I think often that debate comes down to how you define church. As I said before, we see different definitions today. Not all are, are rooted in the Bible. But what's not debatable, not debatable, is that one cannot be a Christian without being a part of the body of Christ. For that is the church. Only through Jesus Christ, being a member of his body, the church, can we come to the Father, to God himself. 
So this common salvation that Jude refers to is an important principle, something that is very important for us to understand. But despite being that important, he felt he needed to write about something else. As important as common salvation is, Jude felt it necessary to write to the recipients of this letter, exhorting them to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So it appears that Jude had set out with the intent to write to his beloved brothers and sisters regarding common salvation, but the Lord had other plans in this case. So this is really where we find out whether or not Jesus is Lord of our lives, isn't it? When we sit down to do something or set out to do something, and God has other plans. If we follow our plans, we find out the Lord's not really in control of our lives. But if we allow our plans to be changed and coincide with His, we find out that He is the Lord of our lives at that point. Jude allowed the Holy Spirit to guide his writing. And this should indicate to them, the recipients of the letter, as well as to us, the importance of this topic. As common salvation is certainly important, so much more so is this topic if the Spirit directed Jude in this direction. The Spirit redirected Jude's efforts to address a particular topic, and Jude shared the original topic. I've sat down at times, numerous times, with a, a scripture that I was going to prepare a message to teach. And when I get through putting the message together, meaning typing it out, and I, as I normally do, and I get finished, I print it out and I sit down away from my computer and just go through it and just read it, start to finish, try to go through it. Try not to even make marks in it, though I normally do. More than once, I've sat down and said, that's not what I originally had in mind. <laughs> that's when you know God was at work, right? It wasn't my thoughts that were on the page, but something he's shared with me. In fact, I've learned that so much that I don't write the introduction anymore until after I finish the message. So, and just about this point in the teaching yesterday, Jeff texted me and wanted to know what the teaching was for today. And I said, it's going to be Jude. He said, all verses? I said, yes, that's, that's my plan. And later in the afternoon, you'll notice we're only covering the first 10 verses. So about 7 o'clock, I texted him and said, God's plan was different, only 10 verses. So once again, we, we allow God to direct, not our own plans. This is why we always ask God to guide and direct everything that we do. We never, never want to operate in our own strength. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Straight from Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. So the new topic for Jude's letter, courtesy of the Holy Spirit, is to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So the word contend... Is translated from the Greek and means to struggle for. It's kind of an athletic term, really, in the athletic games you would see in the Greek world. It means to struggle for. So the exhortation here is to strive earnestly for the faith. Now this indicates to us that we are to put a reasonable amount of effort into this, right? It isn't something we're just going to sit back and it's going to happen on its own. If we need to strive for something, we're going to need to put efforts and energy into it. Now faith here, we need to understand is the essential truths of the gospel. This is the essential truths of the gospel that all true Christians hold in common. Or as one commentator put it, the faith is the body of truth that the very early in the church's history took on a definition, took on a definite form, sorry. The faith is the body of truth that very early in the church's history took on a definite form. It hasn't changed. The truth hasn't changed since Christ was alive when he was crucified or today. The truth is still the same. It will always remain the same. Now, it's important that we don't confuse striving for the faith with striving for salvation. That is totally different. 
Salvation is a component of the faith that was provided for us, not achieved through any work of our own. So we're not striving here for our salvation. Jude is going to show us to strive for our faith. Now, there's many methods in which we can strive for our faith. The first group that I'll share is what we would say is in a positive sense. We can contend for the faith in a positive sense when we give an unflinching witness. So when, when we witness, despite knowing the fact we may offend others, that we are firm in our witness to the Lord and our actions speak of Him. That's a positive witness. When we distribute tracts, we make possible the training of faithful ambassadors for Jesus. And when we're supporting other uh, missionaries or ministers of the work, that's a positive way of a positive sense of striving for the faith. When we strengthen the hands of faithful pastors or honor the word of God in their pulpits, these are just a few of many ways in a positive sense where we are proactively supporting the sharing of the gospel and God's word. We can also contend for the faith in a negative way when we withhold support and encouragement for those who compromise the faith. We don't want to support those who are compromising in the faith. We want to withhold support there. That would be a negative way of withholding the of contending for the faith. When we speak out against the preaching of another gospel, if we hear any other gospel and we point out that that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is a, a way of contending for the faith in a negative way. Or when we speak out against a manner of living that contradicts the message of the gospel. When we take the time to share with a person that the, the way they're living is not in alignment with the Lord's teaching, that is not in alignment with the gospel contained in the Bible, that is a, a way of contending for the faith in a negative way. Or we can contend for the faith in a practical sense when we live an uncompromising Christian life and give credit to the Lord who has changed us. Just our witness, which is really what we're called to be, just the witness. If we live our lives according to the gospel, then that's a practical sense of, live, of contending for the faith. Others can't deny that, especially when they see the Lord change our lives. We are called to live, as, called to live our lives as a light or a beacon to the lost and dying world around us. Now, the word once here in this scripture, once means that the faith was delivered one time and does not need to be delivered again. The gospel was brought to us and and defined really through the work of Christ and the apostles. Now, we distribute this truth again and again, but we don't have to deliver the message again. The message was delivered from God to us. It was recorded here in our scriptures that we study. It doesn't need to be delivered again, only distributed. That is the charge given by Jesus in the book of Acts in the very first chapter. Jesus said, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what Jesus was given there really was a practical sense of contending for the faith. That is a way to contend for the faith in a very practical sense and one that we should be continuously doing without question. So that is a part of our role here on this earth, beginning right where we stand, beginning right here in our Jerusalem, as Pastor Greg has talked about many times, right here in this building, on this property, in this community, um, moving out into the city of Winston-Salem, the state of North Carolina, and beyond. One commentator said, there is no other gospel, there will be none. Its content will be more fully understood, its implications will be developed, its predictions will be fulfilled, but it will never be supplemented or succeeded or supplanted. So the gospel has been delivered. For the Christian, there's really an obligation to learn God's word in its entirety. Read it through. We can do this through reading his word, prayer, application of his truths in our lives. As we live as Christians, as we apply God's principles to our lives, we really learn more, don't we? 
That's where we truly learn what it's like to be a Christian. Fellowship among other believers and sharing these truths with others as we learn them ourselves are all part of the obligation of being a Christian. Now in verse 4, Judas gives us the reason that we need to contend for the faith. In verse 4, Jude says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, Jude tells us that certain men have crept in unnoticed. And this is part of what makes them so dangerous, the fact that they've come in unnoticed. They didn't come through the front door waving, look at me, here I am. Here's what I'm here to do. Spurgeon said, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. Think about that for a minute. One devil inside the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. Now, I personally have never seen a person or welcomed a person coming into the church with a name tag that said false teacher on it. But we have them out there. We see them all over the place. They just don't identify themselves as false teachers. But rest assured that these false teachers are mingled with the church throughout the world today. We saw it numerous times addressed in the scriptures. We see it in this world today. These men, as Jude refers to them, and it would have been so much easier if Jude would have named them, but he didn't. He didn't name them. So we're going to refer to them as these men throughout the, the teaching because that's how Jude referred to them. These men long ago were marked out for condemnation. So it's important to understand God knows who each of these men are. They're not hiding from him. Now, I have this picture in my mind of like a, a secret spy room where they're tracking all their operators on this big LED screen. And they have all the green little dots that are moving around. And these are the, the agents that work for the, the government. Then all the red dots are moving around. And that's the enemy. It's a weird picture. I know because, I mean, God doesn't need a TV screen. Come on. He's got something greater than that. I know. But, but God knows where all these false teachers are. He knows where everybody is that's out there sharing false teachings. He knows where all of his children are that are out there honoring him and serving him. Remember when the devil came into Jesus, he knew exactly where Job was and what he was doing and what he'd been doing and how he was living his life. He knows everything about what we're doing. He also sees the enemy among us. He's a good shepherd. He doesn't lose track of his sheep, and he knows what the threats are that exist around us. So I don't know exactly what that looks like for sure. That's the best picture I've got. But I do know God knows where each of these false teachers are, and he's marked them for condemnation. Their, their day of judgment is coming, and they won't escape it. They will be judged. So these men are ungodly men, Jude tells us. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that we're told they are ungodly men tells us a lot about them, doesn't it? Pretty much anything that God would tell us to do, they're teaching the opposite, right? Really anti-God or anti-Christian, you could say. This puts them at odds with God and it puts them at odds with all Christians. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. Now, the idea of lewdness is to participate in sin without shame or any sense of conscience or decency. It's usually associated with sexual immorality, but lewdness can also be a teaching that's clearly anti-biblical. And we see teachers today that are proclaiming things that are contradictory to our scriptures. And they do it with a great deal of pride and no remorse whatsoever. That's lewdness. Paul addressed such a situation in Romans chapter 20 and 21. Paul was explaining that the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, 
even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. But then Paul, knowing of the lewdness in teaching that was going on out there, Paul asked the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, should we sin more so God can share even more grace? Do we need to help God out with this? Then he answers his own question. He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That would be lewdness in teaching. To teach something, take the words of Scripture and use them in a way that's just contradictory to what's really being taught. That would be lewdness in teaching. To teach that we should continue sinning after being saved by Christ in order to help God distribute more grace is anti-biblical teaching. In verse 5, Jude says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude wasn't telling them anything new. They should know these stories that Jude's getting ready to tell. There's three examples we're going to look at. Jude is saying, I'm not telling you anything new, but it's important that we talk about them again because these were his beloved, he referred to them. These are people he cared about. This was an important topic. Spurgeon said, as for the root facts, the fundamental doctrines, the primary truths of Scripture, we must from day to day insist upon them. We must never say of them, everybody knows them, for alas, everybody forgets them. And that's so true, isn't it? How many times have we read our Bibles and we go, oh, I hadn't thought about that in forever. Why well, wasn't that in the front of my mind? I wish I'd remember that yesterday. So Jude knows that these are something that everybody should know. And and really, as you go through this, you should be saying, yes, Jude, I know exactly what you're talking about. And if we don't recognize them and understand them, then we need to take a little time to go back and read and study, which is what we're doing this morning. So the first example, the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude reminds us of what happened in Numbers chapter 14. God delivered the people out of Israel, the people of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, they went out of Egypt and they came to a place called Kadesh Barnea. All right on the threshold of the promised land. They're here ready to cross the river. But then they hit a snag. They hit a snag. The people refused to trust God and go into the promised land of Canaan. Because what they saw ahead scared them so bad. The giants and the, the terrible place that they looked at. Even though it was a land of promise, they were scared to go in. Therefore... Almost none of the adult generation who left Egypt ever entered the promised land. It was a lack of faith. Think of what God did for all these people of Israel that he led out of Egypt. Despite everything he had done, providing for them through the manna, providing water when they needed it. They'd received daily care and provision. They really didn't have to work for any of it, did they? I mean, the ability to just go out and pick up your food each morning, each time you wanted to eat, there it was for you. He'd provided all they needed, yet they lapsed into unbelief. That was really the situation is they fell into unbelief. They were unable to trust him. And they never entered a place of blessing and rest that God had for them. So those who doubted and rejected God at Kadesh Barnea paid a bigger price than just not entering the promised land. They also received the judgment of God. In Psalm 95, the Lord says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And this was really a group that just continued to lose faith in God. It worked miracle after miracle. That we would look at it and say, how can you not see this? I would never be that foolish, right? But yet we can all be that foolish. We tend to forget God's blessings and the miracles he does for us. So the people of Israel started out from Egypt well, 
did really well to start with. They had many blessings from God along the way, but they did not endure till the end. Because they did not believe God's promise of power and protection. And unbelief comes from looking at our own abilities instead of the Lord's. We take our eyes off of the Lord and what He can do, and we start looking at ourselves. When we start looking at ourselves, we really limit ourselves with boundaries. Because when we look at our own abilities, we set up boundaries for ourselves that we can't get past. But when we look at God's abilities, those boundaries are really limitless, at least in the things that aren't going to hurt us. We tend to look at God's boundaries as a bad thing. We look at God's boundaries and say, He's taking all the fun things away. But really what God's boundaries are, are a boundary to danger, aren't they? Just like any loving parent gives their children boundaries that are going to keep them safe. So our boundaries prevent us from reaching our full potential. So in this first example that we have of the, the children of Israel that were led out of Egypt, we have two lessons. First of all, it assures us that the certain men causing trouble will be, will be judged. Even though they may have started out well, they may have started out doing well, these certain men will be judged. Second, it warns us that we must follow Jesus to the end. Never be among those who do not believe. Even though we can start out well, and we see this warning in the letters to the churches in Revelation, even though we start out well, we can fall away. We don't want to be guilty of that. The final test of our Christianity is endurance. Some start the race but never finish it. We saw that in the disciples that Jesus called as well. The second example in verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, this verse is somewhat obscure and prompts some controversial interpretations. So we're going to stick with what we do know this morning for our purposes, um, which is to study the book of Jude. What we do know is this. He tells us we have angels that have sinned. God has imprisoned them in chains, and they wait a day of judgment sometime in the future. Now, when we look at verse 7, the next verse that we'll study in a minute, there's a hint there. It, it says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Through this, we have a, a strong indication that this angels probably fell to some sort of sexual sin. So it's possible that Jude is referring to um, Genesis 6, where we see the description of the sons of God, they're called. In verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 6, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for them of all whom they chose. And in verse 4 of Genesis 6, we're told there were giants in the earth in these days and also afterward. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, we only have three verses back in Genesis that talk about this situation. Again, another section of Scripture that has many interpretations and I'm not sure how to... um, not sure who's right in the interpretations. A lot of speculation, a lot of controversy around it. But if we stick with the the facts here in Genesis 6, what we want to look at is in verse 5 of Genesis 6. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we see that the situation was so bad, even though we only have three verses giving us hint to the, the whole picture. We don't have the whole picture. 
We see that the situation was so bad that God determined to destroy all the creation from the face of the earth, save Noah. And we're told in the next verse that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So we're told that God has reserved, back in our text in Jude, verse 6, says He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for judgment in the great day. So we see the same result here. Whether that's the same angels or not, we're not 100% sure. There is a good possibility that is them. So what's important that we do understand here from Jude's Scripture, whether that's who he's referring to or not, we do know that these angels did not keep their proper domain. They left their own abode. They left the boundaries that God had set for them, the dwelling place that God had provided for them. Although the angels had dwelt in the presence of God, the very glory of God, they chose to pursue other pleasures. They rejected God and His provisions for them in heaven. So presently, they are bound in chains waiting for their day of judgment as a result. God has bound them in chains in darkness. Their sinful pursuit of freedom actually put them in bondage, didn't it? So we just talked about God puts up boundaries to protect us, not to keep us from having fun or a good time. He, he fences out the dangers. He doesn't fence us in to keep us away from the joy that He has. When we go outside of those boundaries that God has given us, we, we fall to sin. That's when we start finding ourselves in bondage. And that's what happened to these angels. Their pursuit of their own lusts put them in bondage. Their pursuit of their own abodes, as we're told, put them in bondage. So if angels cannot break the chains that sin has brought upon them, well, wouldn't we be foolish to think we can break the chains that sin places on us? We can't escape from these chains. Only through Christ Jesus can we be set free. So these angels who sin with an unnatural sexual union are no longer active. With His radical judgment in the days of Noah, God put an end to that type of unnatural act. So in this second example, we see first, two, again, two lessons. First, it assures us that the certain men causing trouble will be judged no matter what their spiritual status had been. No matter where they came from, just like the angels that chose to leave heaven. You know, they, they resided in the presence of God, but yet their end result is in bondage and we're told they're reserved for the day of judgment. The, these certain men that Jude is referring to that are false teaching in the church, regardless of where they came from, even if they started out well with a, with a sincere heart, that they will be judged. If God judged the angels who sin, certainly He will judge these certain men as well. Second, it warns us that we must continue walking with Jesus. If the past spiritual experience of these angels didn't guarantee their future spiritual state, then neither does ours. We must remain on the guard. Just because we're doing well with the Lord today doesn't mean we always will. All of us are susceptible to fall. Now the third example, verse 7 we've already alluded to, is Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now understand Sodom and Gomorrah were, were blessed. These were privileged places. They were suited or situated in a very fertile area. It was a well watered everywhere like the Garden of Eden. And we get this from Genesis 13 verse 10. Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the Garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zor. So we're given an account that this was a very fertile, very watered area. Jude refers to the account in Genesis 19, where the homosexual conduct of the men of Sodom is described. Ezekiel 16.49 tells us of other sins of Sodom. 
says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So again, the sins listed here are pride, and it says a fullness of food and an abundance of idleness. Now, neither one of those in themselves are a sin. Having plenty of food or free time is not a sin. However, we're told that she did not use those to strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So she was, in her pride, was very greedy with those. So this was a blessed people, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever thought of them that way? Have you ever realized they started out really blessed? That the God had really given them a fertile land, a place where they didn't have to work hard to grow their crops and to see their herds blessed? You don't get this kind of abundance without the material blessings from God. This doesn't just fall in your lap. There's probably not many here today, but there may be a few. Does anybody have an abundance of food and plenty of time? You have all your needs met and plenty of time too. Just to lay around and think about how your treasures and joy that you have. If you do, that's a blessing from God. It should be recognized as such. And if you have all that out of time, you really should. That God's provided, we need to honor Him with it. We need to give it to Him and ask Him what He would have us do with it. But the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were living in this fertile area that God had blessed. Their crops were doing well. Their herds were doing so well. They, they barely had to work to have all the food that they needed. But part of their sin was they weren't using it to bless others. Instead, they used it to uh, defile themselves. They used their idle time to go outside those boundaries that God had set for us and for them and to pursue their own desires. So the people of Sodom and Gomorrah pursued these fleshly desires. They gave themselves over to sexual immorality and strange flesh. They used God's blessing as an occasion to sin, really. The blessing they received from God, they used it as an occasion to sin. This sin became such a part of the lifestyle of Sodom and Gomorrah that when you say those names today, what is thought of throughout the world? It's really a synonym for sexual immorality in today's world, isn't it? Anywhere around the world, you speak of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's what people think of. It's become a synonym. Sexual depravity was not their only sin, but it was certainly among their sins, and and Jude was very clear about this. He reminds the reader that the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah was the suffering, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Yes, the city was the cities were destroyed with brimstone and fire, but that pales in comparison to realizing their final judgment. Their final judgment uh, was a judgment by fire as well. They suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. So again, we have two lessons in this third example of Sodom and Gomorrah. First, it assures us that the, the certain men that Jude is warning about causing trouble will be judged no matter how much they have been blessed in the past. Even if these were men that at one time were serving the Lord and God was blessing them then, it doesn't mean that will continue forever. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah were once wonderfully blessed, but eventually they suffered uh, the vengeance of eternal fire. So it will be with these certain men. And second, the warning for us is that we must continue walking with Jesus. If the blessings of the past didn't guarantee the future spiritual state of Sodom and Gomorrah, then it won't ours either. Again, we're all subject to fall when we neglect our relationship with the one who is able to keep us from falling. Now, in verse 8, Jude goes on to talk about some of the other sins of the the certain men. Verse 8, Jude says, Likewise, all these dreamers defile the flesh reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. So after the, the three, sample, three examples of groups that have suffered judgment at the hand of God for their choices, now Jude's focusing in on these certain men. Jude points out that these certain men rejected authority. And really what he's saying here is they wanted to be in authority. 
When, when we find ourselves rejecting authority, it's because we don't like what the authority is telling us, typically. We want the authority to make our own decisions. So we reject authority, the authority that God has placed over us so that we can make our own decisions. We want that authority ourselves. Today, our culture actually encourages us to reject authority in many cases, especially when you're talking about spiritual authority. We can do this in three ways, really. We can do this with the Bible. Even with our Bible, we can reject authority. If we choose to only believe certain passages, but, but forget others, you know, you hear that you, from time to time we'll hear that bad things don't happen to good people. Well, in order to believe that, you've really got to reach, rip Job out of your Bible, don't you? You've got to ignore that whole book to believe that bad things can't happen to a Christian. We can do this with our beliefs, even with our own beliefs. We can choose a, a form of religion that suits our own beliefs, can't we? There's plenty of religions out there that we can choose from. So we decide what we want to believe. We find a religion that conforms to that instead of seeking God's truth and conforming our lives to that truth. Or we can do it with our lifestyle. We can make ourselves the authority in our, of our lives, and we can choose to live a lifestyle that's void of God's rules and the property authorities that God has put in place. We can choose to rule our own lives. And when we do that, we find ourselves in trouble. In the darkest days of Israel, society was characterized by a term we find in Judges chapter 21 that every man did what was right in their own eyes. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. And today this is a pattern that we see all over the world, really. Men are encouraged to do what's right in their own eyes and not seek the Lord. We're told that these men speak evil of dignitaries. Now the dignitaries that Jude is referring to is probably the apostles and the church leaders. These are the ones that Jude would have been under the authority of or, or would have been a part of. These are leaders that God had ordained. Now, by dignitaries, really you can transfer that, translate that to mean glorious ones. Or it could be translated as ones worthy of praise, honor, and glory. So these are people that are worthy of praise, honor, and glory. But we're told that these certain men are speaking evil of them. So one of the common tactics that you can use when you want to promote your own agenda is to tear down the competition, right? We say bad things about the person so we can discredit them. And then our lies, especially if it's lies we're telling, our lies now contain at least the same amount of credibility as the lies we've told about them. It's a common tactic that we see in the world today, especially in politics. Instead of focusing on our own sins, we want to talk about the sins of others frequently. And that's Covered in Matthew 7, we're told, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? You know, we want to divert attention from ourselves to others to make ourselves look better. And that's likely what these men were doing. They wanted to draw the attention for themselves, promote their own agenda, their own false teaching. So they needed to tear down, or at least attempt to try to tear down the truths that were being taught by God's anointed ones. Attacking others does not validate our own opinions. Just because we disagree with another person doesn't mean we are right. When we stand firmly on the truths of the message in the gospel, then we are right. We have nothing to provide, by, nothing to prove by tearing down anyone else when we stand on the truths in the gospel. These certain men then and today will attack and ridicule the men that God has placed before us as teachers and examples. And we see it throughout Hollywood especially. We see it throughout our news media today. When a person stands up and shares a biblical truth, and especially if they use the name of Jesus in doing so, they're mocked and ridiculed. All you have to do is go find one of the articles online where, or Billy Graham or uh, numerous other ones within the media, and especially the Hollywood realm. If they said something referring to Jesus Christ, read the 
um, commentaries or the comments under that article that they allow you to place online. The heated battles just that rage in those sections. I, I can't hardly read them most of the time, but there's very seldom anything nice said. Very little support offered for them. I always cringe when I see this because it reminds me of how many people out there are living in the lives of the enemy. That when they, they hear a, a biblical truth shared, that there's this many people that, that think it's a lie, that have been fooled to think that that is the lie, that the truths are the lies, and are rejecting those truths. And as long as they're rejecting those truths, they won't be able to come to the Lord until they recognize the truth. Verse 9, we're told, Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude Jude mentions two kinds of angelic beings. And understand that that God has no evil, equal. God has no equal. Often many people think that the devil is God's equal and opposite, but that's not true. In reality, Michael is an angelic being faithful to God, while the devil is an angelic being that rebelled against God. If there is an evil to the devil anywhere, it's Michael, the archangel. So Michael, the archangel, is mentioned by name in four passages in the Bible. Daniel 10, Daniel 12, Revelation 12, and here in Jude. We only have four references to him. Clark says, Let it be observed that the word archangel is never found in a plural number in sacred writings. There can be properly only one archangel, one chief or head of all the angelic host. Nor is the word devil, as applied to the great enemy of mankind, ever found in the plural. There can be but one monarch of the fallen spirits. So what he's saying there is looking at just the Bible, what we see is one devil and one um, archangel as in Michael. So what Jude is saying here is that when Michael contended with the devil for Moses' body, this is again another obscure reference by Jude. The last time we read about the body of Moses was in Deuteronomy, uh, uh, chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. We're told Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the grave to this day. And that's really all we're told about what happened to Moses' body until this account in Jude. But Jude tells us the main point is not why Michael was disputed, but how he disputed with the devil. And that's where our lesson comes from. He dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So first of all, we see that Michael was in a battle, as each of us should be. Michael was in a battle. He was battling on the Lord's behalf. Second, we see that he battled in whose authority? His own? No, he battled in the Lord's authority. So Jesus, Jesus rebuked the devil in his own authority. And this is another, many have speculated that, that Michael was Jesus. That shows us that's not the case. But what's important is that we see that Michael did not and could not reject the devil on his own authority. Michael did not mock or accuse the devil. God hasn't called us to judge the devil or to condemn the devil. As Pastor Chuck Smith said, he said, I don't want to confront the devil on my own. I'm perfectly happy to go to Christ and let him confront the devil on my behalf. So this relates to the certain men by one of those how much more line of thinkings. If Michael, an archangel, did not see fit to revile, uh, to bring a reviling accusation against the devil, another high-ranking evil being, how much more should these certain men not speak evil of the dignitaries that God has ordained? So if Michael would not bring accusation against the devil, how much more should a man on earth not speak out against God's chosen ones here?
Verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. So in contrast to Micah, who would not even speak evil of the devil, these certain men spoke evil, especially when they rejected authority and spoke against dignitaries. And we're told especially of whatever they do not know. These certain men often didn't even know the people or the things they were speaking of. Have you ever seen an individual just just talk and, and you realize they have no knowledge whatsoever of what they're talking about? They just go on and on and you realize that they're talking about a place they've never been or sharing an experience that they've never been through. They're trying to describe it out of ignorance, really. And that's the problem. Their evil speech was made worse by their ignorance. Not only were they sharing unbiblical truths, but they were sharing them out of ignorance they didn't know. Since they spoke against dignitaries and rejected authority, these certain men did not know about true spiritual leadership and authority. They had rejected all authority. They'd never learned about it. And because they were rejecting it, they had no opportunity to learn about it. They were too busy railing against it, putting up walls. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth came knowledge and understanding. If they're too busy separating themselves from the Lord, how will they ever gain that knowledge and understanding if it comes from the Lord? That was Proverbs 2. Proverbs 11 says, The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. So the hypocrite is the one who destroys his neighbor by talking without knowledge. These certain men rejected God and therefore lacked knowledge. As a result, they acted in ignorance. And Proverbs 1, 7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So this fear of the Lord, this separation that these certain men placed between themselves and all things that had to do with God, they were too busy tearing down the godly leaders to learn anything. This separation really was a hindrance to them ever gaining knowledge. And whatever they knew naturally like brute beasts in these things, they corrupted themselves. Unfortunately, a, a brute beast can be smart or clever in their own way, right? Think of a large, strong brute beast animal like an ox or something like that. can never have a spiritual understanding, can it? These creatures were not designed to have a spiritual knowledge. It's the same with these certain men. Because they're choosing to act out in uh, such a way and separate themselves from the spiritual realm, the true spiritual realm, they know nothing about it. And they actually condemn themselves. In closing here, we're going to pick up here next, uh, next Sunday and finish with the, the rest of the verses in Jude. But in closing this letter, there, there was, as I said, we started out with some encouraging stuff, and then we get into some warnings that Jude is bringing. Jude addressed this letter to those who were called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Then he warns of the certain men that have crept in unnoticed, who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds us uh, through these examples of how God has dealt with these activities in the past and uh, assures us that we can use this as the justification or the assurance that God will deal with this same type of activity in the future. Jude never calls these certain men by name. As I said, it would be much easier if he did. It would make the notes much easier anyway. But more importantly, he defines their character so that we can be on watch for them today. And I think that's probably part of the reason he did that. He always referred to them as certain men because there was such a broad range of them. He didn't want to list a name or two or three names. He wanted them to be on the lookout. And I think that we need to do that today. These dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. These are the traits that we need to be looking out for today to identify these men. 
And they speak evil of what they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. So these are what we need to be on the lookout for. And we'll talk more about them next week. But while you're on the lookout for these, I don't want to leave with such a, a negative set of Scripture. Uh, let me give you a description of what you should be doing as a Christian, as the, the opposite of these certain men, as a healthy member of the church, the body of Christ. I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." So echoing Jude's sentiment, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, I'm sure you've all read this. As I read those words, I hope you were saying, I know this, this isn't anything new to me. But I read it for the purpose to to quote Calvin, to use God's word is not only to teach what we could not have otherwise known, but also to rouse us to a serious meditation of those things, which we already understood, and not to suffer us to grow torpid in a cold knowledge. So those are all things that we should know. We want to be reminded of them. We need to be reminded of them. So as the worship team comes back up, we do need to reflect on what God has called us to do. We do need to, as as much as we may not enjoy even, reading these warnings and, and looking back on the judgments that God has passed in the future on His people. We need to be aware that they are a reality. We do need to be reminded of them, that they are an important part of our scriptures and an important part of the history, of God's history, and of man's history. And that we are susceptible to everything that they were susceptible to. That we all risk that chance of falling when we don't keep God first in our lives. So as we leave today, and again, we'll look at this again next week, I just want to encourage you, those words of Peter, that God has called you and separated you. He's made you separate. He's done the work. He's become the cornerstone. He's done all the work for our salvation. The faith has been delivered to us that we may live in it, we may walk in it, and He gives us the power to even do that. But we have to accept that. We have to acknowledge that. We have to keep it in our hearts. We need to continue to read it and spend time with Him in order to keep it fresh in our minds, in order to be reminded that we may not stumble. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity just to come here and study your word. Lord, thank you for the teachers that you have, Lord, put in our lives. Lord, uh, not only your, your word and the many teachers who recorded their words here in the Bible for us that's been preserved, 
But, Lord, those teachers that you place in front of us today, if we're willing to open our eyes and look and see, Lord, you're speaking to us through so many today. Lord, and help us to recognize the body that you have put together. Lord, the body of believers that you call the church that one day, Lord, will become your bride. This is the, the group of individuals that you've called out of the sins of this world, that you've called out of the worldly pleasures that we once pursued. And you've set us aside that you are creating a bride for yourself that you will take when the time is right, Lord, when the Father chooses. Lord, help us to keep ourselves from defilement. Lord, help us to follow you and pursue only the things that glorify and honor you, Lord. We ask all of these in your Son's precious name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.